Okay, turn with me to um, Matthew 5. We're going to be looking at verses 44 to 48. We already looked at verse 43, and uh, we saw that uh, the Pharisees had taken the concept of love your neighbor, dropped off as yourself, and added and hate your enemies to it, and uh, so seriously perverted what the Old Testament said, redefined the meaning of a neighbor. So now Jesus is going to give his perspective on this. He says, starting in verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the Lord's corrective to the error of the Jewish system. <clears throat> and he gives five principles to correct this faulty love of the Pharisees and the scribes. Five short sequential statements that sort of ascend to the highest statement of all. And they have a sort of a flow, and we'll see that as we go along. So uh, as I, I'll give them to you again, then we'll look at each one. There, love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, manifest your sonship, exceed your fellow men, and imitate your heavenly Father. Now let's begin with love your enemies. Jesus says there, but I say to you, love your enemies. John MacArthur says this about the statement. Here is the most powerful teaching in Scripture about the meaning of love. <coughs> the love that God commands of his people is love so great that it even embraces enemies. End quote. Now you have to remember what kind of culture was going on around Jesus when he said these words. We've already talked about this wall of separation. It was between the Jews and the Gentiles. We already talked about the social barricades between the so-called good Jews, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the bad Jews, the tax collectors, the sinners, and the rest of the rabble that didn't know the law very well. Uh, William Hendrickson says, all around him were these walls and fences. He came for the very purpose of bursting those barriers so that love, pure, warm, divine, infinite, would be able to flow straight down from the heart of God, hence from his own marvelous heart, into the hearts of men. His love overleaped all the boundaries of race, nationality, party, age, sex, etc. When he said, I tell you, you love your enemies, he must have startled his audience, for he was saying something that probably never before had been said so succinctly, positively, and forcefully. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, as you know, were proud, prejudiced, judgmental, spiteful, hateful, vengeful men who acted as though they were the custodians of God's law. And to them, Jesus' command to love your enemies must have seemed naive and rather foolish to the extreme. They, they felt it was their right and duty to hate their enemies because in their thinking, 
Not to hate those who obviously deserved to be hated would be a breach of the standard of righteousness. But once again, Jesus sets his divine standard against their perverted human standards, and he speaks with, the authority, with authority on this matter. After all, he is the Lord of the law. He is the Son of God, and so he speaks with an emphatic, but I say to you. Now, your English translation doesn't show it. I pointed this out two weeks ago, that it's very clear in the Greek text, if you, if you translated it literally, he emphasizes it. He says, but I, I say to you. So he is emphasizing that he is speaking authoritatively. He's setting himself up as one who can speak over there against their system, regardless of who their teachers have been and what they've said. It's not just his teaching that's the standard of truth, but that he himself is the standard of truth. One Bible teacher paraphrased what Jesus was saying this way. He says, Jesus is saying, your great rabbis, scribes, and scholars have taught you to love only those of your own preference and to hate your enemies. But by my own authority, I declare that they are false teachers and have perverted God's revealed will. The divine truth is my truth, which is that you shall love your enemies. Now, as we've already seen, the Old Testament concept of your neighbor included your personal enemies. Uh, and that's the truth that Jesus expands on in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's turn over to Luke 10 and see how he does that. Luke 10. And we'll begin at verse 25. It says, And a lawyer stood up. There, are, there go the lawyers again. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is that, this is, now, he's a lawyer, but he's not the same thing as a lawyer in our culture. This guy is one of the scribes. Uh, they were experts on the Mosaic law. Verse 26, And he, that's Jesus, said to him, the scribe, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So this lawyer, this scribe, correctly quotes the Old Testament, and Jesus told him that if he that he had answered the question correctly and that if he obeyed those two laws, he would have eternal life. But as was always the case with these guys, they always looked for a way out from the righteous standards of the law. So verse 29 tells us, But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So he says, Love my neighbor as myself. Well, then, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus says, well, let me tell you a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that's down in elevation. You go from over 2,500 feet above sea level to almost 800 feet below sea level in a distance of about 15 miles. And he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance... A priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, a priest 
was a man who represented God to the people. He stood in the place of God and connected people with God. All of the people in the society, of all, of all the people that you would encounter in their society, a priest should have been the one who behaved like God behaved. But the priest came along, saw the man, and he went to the other side of the road. After all, who wants to touch a guy who's bleeding? He's, he's not my neighbor. He's filthy. He isn't a part of my particular religious party. Verse 32. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. This guy was one of the Levites, the people who served in the temple as doorkeepers and singers and keepers of the Torah scrolls and repairmen and cleaners of the temple and all of its religious objects. And he said, I'm not going near the guy. He's, he's not a part of my group either. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. Stop right there. That word, when as soon as Jesus said that, that would have conjured up all kinds of thoughts for that lawyer and all the other Jews standing around listening. Because the Samaritans were considered basically to be a race of half-breeds. Originally, they were Jewish people who intermarried with the pagans who infiltrated the northern kingdom. And the most despicable thing to a purebred Jew was for somebody to defile the uniqueness of being a Jew by intermarrying with a pagan. And whenever the Jews traveled from Judea to in the southern part of Israel up to Galilee in the northern part of Israel, or vice versa, they would go across the Jordan and up the east side and then cross back over after they got past Samaria so that they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. They didn't want to defile themselves with that polluted land. That's why the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well uh, in John 4 is so interesting because verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria. Actually, from the Jewish perspective, he didn't have to. But from the perspective of having a divine appointment with that woman, he did. But in Jewish, in Jesus' parable here, here comes a Samaritan, an enemy who would, have, who would look at that bleeding Jew and you would suppose that he would say, look at that Jew lying there in the ditch about to die from his beating. It's about time one of them got his due for the way they treat us. But verses 33 to 35, look what they say. When he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, that's two days wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and do whatever more you spend and whatever more you spend when I return I will repay you and after telling this story in which the unexpected takes place Jesus then drops the bombshell question verse 36 which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the into the robber's hands and the lawyer says the one who showed mercy toward him and then Jesus said to him go and do the same 
Jesus just answered the lawyer's question from back up in verse 29. Who is my neighbor? And the answer is anyone who needs you. Anyone in my path with a need constitutes my neighbor. Uh, not because they believe what I believe or think what I think or belong to my group. God loved us when we were his enemies and he died for us. And it's that very love that we're to have for others. You say, well, what kind of love is Jesus talking about, Bruce? Well, first you have to understand that in the Greek language, there are four words that are usually translated as love. The first is philia, uh, which refers to a strong friendship type of love. Then there is storge, which is, a, it's a word that's not found in scripture. It's a Greek word, it's not found in scripture, uh, but it refers to close affection. It's like the love between family members. And then there is eros, which is sexual love. And finally, there is agape, which uh, refers to self-sacrificing love that seeks and works to meet another's highest welfare. I'll let you guess which type of love Jesus is referring to here. Uh, when he says, love your enemies. Remember, he's our role model. We're to love like he loved his enemies. So the word here is agapao, which is the verb form of agape. Um, in John 13, 34, when Jesus told the disciples, love one another even as I have loved you, he just finished washing their feet. At that point, he wasn't saying, you know, you guys are so wonderful. You're just irresistible. No, they were cantankerous, ugly guys arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom right then. And they're behaving sinfully. They're self-motivated. They're self-centered. They couldn't even be considered enough to think about the fact that Jesus had told them he was going to the cross and, try, and they didn't try to comfort him. They're acting about as badly as they had ever acted in the New Testament. And yet he says, love one another, even as I have loved you. What did he do? He washed their filthy, dirty feet. And that's what he's saying. You see, love is an act of service to one in need. It is not necessarily an emotion. You'll notice that he says, love your enemies. Now, that's not necessarily a feeling that you get. It's, it's that you say things that bless him. You do good to him. It's what you say and what you do that God is after, not how you feel. You may have an enemy, and in your heart, you know there is no great human affection. You know you'll never embrace him like a person in your family, but you will, with your mouth, bless him in what you say, and with your life, bless him in what you do. So we find that love that we're talking about is a love of action, not the love of emotion. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote these words about this matter. Quote, the rule for all of us is perfectly simple. 
Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you'll find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and worldly man is not that the worldly man has often affections or likings and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning." End quote. I know you're all very familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the chapter that contains the greatest definition of love ever written. But just listen as I read verses 4 to the beginning of verse 8. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. There are 15 characteristics of love given there. And I hope you noticed that all of them appear in a verbal form. They're not presented as nouns. Rather, they are presented as verbs. Why? Because love is doing. Love is an action. Love can never be defined as an object. Love is always an activity, always an action. And that's the kind of love that characterizes our Lord Jesus. That's the way God loves. That's the way we're to love. Bible scholar R.C.H. Linsky commented on this passage in Matthew and explained how we're to put this principle into practice. This quote's a little lengthy, but I think it expresses very well how we're to act. Here's what he wrote. Love indeed sees all the hatefulness and the wickedness of the enemy, feels his stabs and his blows, may even have something to do with warding them off. But all this simply fills the loving heart with the one desire and aim to free its enemy from his hate, to rescue him from his sin, and thus to save his soul. Mere affection is often blind, but even then it thinks that it sees something attractive in the one towards whom it goes out. And the higher love may see nothing attractive in the one so loved. Its inner motive is simply to bestow true blessing on the one loved and to do him the highest good. I cannot like a low, mean criminal who may have robbed me and threatened my life. I cannot like a false, lying, slanderous fellow who perhaps has vilified me again and again. But I can, by the grace of Jesus Christ, love them all. See what is wrong with them. Desire and work to do them only good. Most of all, to free them from their vicious ways." End quote. So we're to love not in terms of a feeling, but in terms of service. Paul expresses it this way in Romans 12, 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. That means you'll bring shame upon him. It refers back to an ancient Egyptian custom that was well known throughout the Roman Empire uh, that when a person wanted to demonstrate public contrition, he would carry on his head a pan of burning coals to represent the burning pain of his shame and guilt. Uh, the point Paul is making is that when we love our enemy and genuinely seek to meet his needs, we shame him for his hatred. And then Paul continues on in verse 21 saying, do not overcome evil, but overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, when someone does evil to you, don't retaliate, don't lose the battle, but overcome that evil with your goodness. Let the enemy come and throw everything he can at you, but never let his actions cause you to fall into sin. The early church father, John Chrysostom, uh, said this about this verse. He said, you will drown his evil. Like a spark that falls into the sea, so does an injury find itself extinguished when it comes into the sea of the love of a believer. As you know, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, Europe had become a hotbed of persecution uh, for those who were turning from Catholicism to biblical Christianity and were trusting Christ alone for their salvation. And in the Netherlands, there was a Dutch believer by the name of Dirk Willems uh, who embraced baptism by immersion uh, rather than sprinkling as practiced by the Roman Catholic Church. He was part of the Anabaptists, which were the forerunners of the Mennonites. Uh, and not only did he become a Baptist, but he taught others that baptism by immersion was the proper means of baptism, and several people were baptized in his home. And that led to his condemnation by the Roman Catholic Church and his subsequent arrest in 1569. Uh, Willems was held in a prison for quite some time awaiting his execution. And it was near the end of winter and he managed to escape by using a rope made of knotted rags to climb out a window. And he crossed over the frozen moat and was running for his life when a guard began uh, guard noticed his escape and began to chase him. And as he ran, he ran across a lake which was frozen, but the ice was thin. Willems had lost a lot of weight in prison, so he crossed the lake successfully. The guard, though, who was chasing him, fell through the ice and began yelling for help as he struggled in the icy water. No one was near the guard to help but Dirk, but the guard was his enemy. But Willems turned back and rescued the guard from the water. But by that time, other guards arrived and they arrested Willems. And dis, uh, they rearrested him despite this rescued guard's pleas for him to be set free. I would like to tell you that everything turned out well for Willems, but it did not. He was executed by being burned at the stake in a horribly painful death. 
but he had fulfilled the spirit of the words of Jesus, love your enemies by taking action to rescue the life of a man who was about to die, just as he would have wanted someone to do for himself. In the uh, famous book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, it records the story of the Scottish reformer, George Wishart, uh, a contemporary uh, and friend of John Knox, who was sentenced to die as a heretic. And he was taken to the place of execution. And when he arrived, the executioner recognized him. And he knew of Wishart's selfless ministering to hundreds of people who were dying of the plague. Though Wishart was so, I mean, the uh, executioner was so burdened with the guilt of his role as the executioner that he hesitated and was very reluctant to carry out his duty. And when Wishart saw the expression of remorse on the executioner's face, he turned to him, put his arms around him and embraced him, kissed him on the cheek and said to him, Sir, may that be a token that I forgive you. That's loving your enemies. Our enemies, of course, don't always come in such life-threatening forms. Often they're ordinary people who are mean, impatient, judgmental, self-righteous, and spiteful, or, or perhaps they just disagree with us. In whatever personal relationships we have, God wants us to love, whether a conflict is with our spouse, our children, our parents, our friends, fellow church members, a business opponent, a spiteful neighbor, a political foe, or a social antagonist, our attitude toward them should be one of prayerful love, which is demonstrated in gracious action. This is going to become one of the more important much more important in the very near future as evangelical Christians are increasingly marginalized and portrayed by our culture as a stain and pariah on our society. But if we're going to reach those among them who have been appointed to eternal life, we need to love them even though they are our enemies. Well, that brings us to the second of Jesus' five statements, but let me just take a breath and pause here for a moment. Find out if there are any questions before we move on. Yes, Charles. Bruce, what was the heading of this again? Five principles for what? It's Jesus' perspective on this. Uh, I don't remember what I titled it. <laughs> um, let me look. Thank you. Correcting faulty love of the Pharisees only through the Holy Spirit. So five ways to correct faulty love. That's good. That's a good title. <laughs> five ways to correct faulty love. Okay. Let's get back to the second one, verse 44. Pray for your persecutors. Pray for your persecutors. He says, pray for those who persecute you. You know, there's no persecution and hatred in the world as severe as the persecution and hatred regarding religion. You see, every person lives with sin and guilt. And guilt produces fear, and the ultimate fear that man has is the fear of death. What's going to happen to them when they die? If there is a God and I've sinned, will I be punished? Man lives with the imminence of punishment, and thus man lives in fear. So man inevitably constructs a system 
whereby he can deal with his fear. He convinces himself that he's okay, that he's kept enough rules, that God is going to let him get into heaven, that he's really not such a bad guy. Or else he just decides that there's no God at all who holds man accountable for sin, and he tells himself, I'm not going to come under guilt. I will not have the fear of judgment, and I'll just get rid of it by saying that there is no God. So when you go to an individual and you say, you're a sinner and you will die and go to hell apart from Jesus Christ, you need to be redeemed and you need to be saved, you are striking that individual at the core of his deepest pain because you're dragging back all of his anxiety, all of his sin, all of his guilt, all of the fear that he has managed to suppress under the tenets of his philosophy or religion. It's as if you're tearing the scab off of a severe wound. And that's why most of the most severe persecution that you see in the world is always religious because you're unmasking people at their most vulnerable point. Besides that, persecution brings into focus the real battle between Satan and God. So religious persecution throughout history has always been the most intense. And when we stand up and live for Jesus Christ in this society, we will be persecuted. Uh, and more and more persecution for their faith is happening to people. It's in its infancy form here in the United States, where governments and special interests put restrictions on churches and believers so that they refuse to let them meet, or they demand that they violate their conscience on a matter which God's word commands them to obey. In Islamic countries, the persecution is much more open and violent with shootings and beheadings and crucifixions of Christians being quite common. They don't even have to be what we would consider a true believer. Uh, they only have to be a Christian in name only, and their life is in danger. Uh, as Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, I read numerous articles of the evangelical believers there asking for prayer because of the violent persecution that they know that they will now face. But the question is, in the midst of the most heinous kind of hatred, at the point of the most serious reaction to persecution, can we pray on behalf of the very people who seek to destroy us? That's what Jesus said we're to do. So what does Jesus mean when he says to pray for them? I think he means to beseech God for their highest good. I don't think he's talking about praying for fire to come down from heaven and consume them. I, I, I think he's praying there, here for their salvation. Charles Spurgeon said prayer is the forerunner of mercy. When we pray, we release God's mercy in a very real way. And that's what Jesus is saying. Pray for your persecutors, the very ones who would take your life. Pray for them. You know, it's not hard to figure out who our enemies are. We can point them out. We can say they're enemies of Christ, they're enemies of the cross. And that's what we, what we often do is we forget that what we're to hate is what they represent, not who they are. We are to love them and pray for them. Hate the sin and love the sinner and pray for them. 
wouldn't it be great if we all just began to pray for the people who are set against us? Praying what? That they would be redeemed. That prayer in and of itself will fill your heart with love. Uh, it will cleanse your soul to pray like that. If you're knocking heads with someone who just antagonizes you and you resent them, here's the solution. Pray for them. Set aside a certain time every day and pray for them. You know what happens? It begins to wash that soul of bitterness out of you as you, when you pray for someone and you ask God to be merciful in their life. In fact, Chrysostom also said that this kind of prayer is the very highest summit of self-control. You've truly brought your life into conformity to God's standards when you can pray for your persecutors. D.A. Carson puts it this way, To be persecuted for righteousness' sake is to align oneself with the prophets, but to bless and pray for those who persecute us is to align oneself with the character of God. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who suffered so much in Nazi Germany, said this, This is the supreme command. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead to God for him. Imagine that. The cruel torture of crucifixion couldn't even silence Jesus' prayer, could it? Crushing stones didn't silence Stephen's prayer. So love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. Well, next we come to verse 45, and he says, manifest your sonship. Manifest your sonship. Look at verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In the Greek, this verse begins with a conjunction which expresses purpose and an aorist tense verb which indicates a once-for-all established fact. Why love your enemies? Why pray for your persecutors? For the purpose that you will be forever established as sons of your Father who is in heaven. The Bible says God is love. If God is love and I'm his child, then what should I be characterized by? Love. And so 1 John 3.14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And verse 17 says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, if you don't show love to your brother, how can you claim to be a child of God? Don't claim you belong to God if you don't manifest love. Now, please understand that Jesus is not saying you will become a son of God if you love. He's not saying if you just muster up enough love, then you earn your way into the family of God. No, he's saying you will prove the fidelity, the validity of your claim that you're a son of God when you manifest love in your life. You will prove it. It's kind of like Peter said, we already have this divine nature. We already have received this incorruptible character. But to make our calling and election sure, we have to add to what we've received virtue and so forth. In other words, 
will never convince anybody we belong to God unless we're like him. And he loves. So manifest your sonship. It's only right that we manifest something of our father's character, isn't it? That's what Jesus is saying. He's telling the scribes and Pharisees, you guys may claim to be sons of God, but you don't manifest the character of God, and so you're never going to convince anyone of that. What's the biggest criticism that people have about the truth of the gospel? It's that the people who claim to be Christians don't live it. That's always it. I know that you, like me, have heard people say that the church is just a bunch of hypocrites. They claim they love Jesus, but they sure don't live like they do. The folks that say those things often have limited and very distorted ideas about what the gospel is, but they know enough about the teachings of Christ and the life of Christ to realize that most people who claim to be Christians do not do all that he commanded and do not live as he lived. So it's true that the biggest detriment to Christianity is Christians. We just don't live up to the standard that we ourselves ascribe to. So that's the problem. I, I've told you before that I, many years ago, I worked with a man who was a deacon in a large Baptist church in our area, but he lived two lives. One was a pious, religious, generous, compassionate, caring life on Sundays. And the other was a self-centered, what's-in-it-for-me life that only held the biblical principles if he thought there was something to be gained personally or professionally by doing so. Otherwise, whatever was expedient, even if it was ethically wrong, was okay as far as he was concerned. And my co-workers saw right through him. And they would say things to me such as, he leads the church in prayer on Sunday and stabs other people in the back on Monday. How can he claim to be a Christian? I had many conversations with him through the years about his faith and how it worked out in his life. And I'm still not sure whether or not he was a true believer. He, he said a lot of things right and claimed to be trusting Christ alone, but he just never seemed to be able to see the hypocrisy between what he claimed to believe and how he lived. Uh, he passed away several years ago, and I, I hope he's in heaven where he's now perfectly sanctified. Uh, but I'm sure that many of you have worked with someone like that or have someone like that in your family. Manifest your sonship. Let it be evident as a settled fact. Prove it. You know, there are people who are Christians, but you're never quite sure if they are because they don't love like this. But I'll tell you, you find someone whose life is full of love, who overflows with love, who gushes out with love toward everyone, be he friend or foe. And the world will have a very difficult time assuming that that love comes from a human source because people don't love like that naturally. That's exactly what the Lord says in this verse. He says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, your style of life ought to be one that isn't earthly. You ought to manifest a heavenly source. That's why he identifies the father as the one who's in heaven. Not your earthly father, your heavenly one. 
not a father with a human approach to life, as good as he may be, but one with a manifest, manifestation of love that is only described as heavenly. What kind of love is that? Well, look at God. Jesus says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. His point here is impartiality. He's saying that God loves everyone. When the sun comes up and shines in its beauty and spreads its warmth, it's for everyone. And when the rain falls, it's for the benefit of everyone. It doesn't matter that most of those people are still in rebellion against God and many of them deny that he even exists. He still provides the sun's warmth and the rain to grow crops for food. Why does God do that? Because he's good and he does not discriminate in his benevolence. This is what theologians call his common grace. Divine love and providence touches everyone. So Jesus is saying, look, be like your father. Let your love be indiscriminate, just as like your heavenly father's love and benevolence is indiscriminate. If you act like him, loving both your brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as those who oppose the cause of Christ, it will be obvious that you belong to your father. There's an old rabbinic tale about the destruction of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. It's obviously fantasy, but it makes a good point. In that tale, it says that when the Egyptians were drowned, the angels in heaven began to praise God. And God lifted his hand mournfully, silenced the angels and said, the works of my hands are sunk in the sea and you would sing. The point of the story is that God loved Pharaoh and God loved Pharaoh's soldiers because God is love. So manifest your sonship by praying for your persecutors and loving your enemies. In Psalm 145, 15 and 16, David wrote, the eyes of all, notice that word, look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. There's no good thing, physical, intellectual, emotional, moral, spiritual, or any other sort that anyone possesses or experiences that does not come from the hand of God. If God does that for everyone, his children should reflect that same generosity. So all people receive God's common grace and providential love, but not all receive that special love that is reserved for God's covenant people who come to him through the blood of Christ. As an illustration in Genesis 17, we find the story of God establishing his covenant with Abraham to make him into a great nation. And at that point in time, Abraham already had a son, Ishmael, through Sarah's servant, Hagar. And after God makes the covenant with Abraham, he promises Abraham that he will give him a son of the covenant and that Abraham is to name him Isaac. And Abraham cries out to God in verse 18, oh, that Ishmael would, might live before you. To which God responds in verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and I will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. So God was even gracious to the illegitimate son. 
God is even gracious to an outcast and to people who were not part of his covenant children. That's God's love. But verse 21 says, but my covenant I shall make with Isaac. God loved Ishmael, but he had a special love for Isaac. God loves the world, but he has a special love for his covenant children, his covenant people who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ. Common grace is a wonderful thing. Providential love is a wonderful thing, but it will not save you. For that you must come to Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for your persecutors, and thereby you will manifest your sonship. Next we come to exceed your fellow man. Look at verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? If the scribes and Pharisees were sure of any one thing, it was that they were far better than anyone else. But Jesus just sort of slices through their blind hypocrisy and shows that their type of love is nothing more than ordinary self-centered love that was common even to the tax collectors and Gentiles. He says, if you only love the people in your group, why should you be commended? If you just love the people who agree with you, who think like you and belong to your little group, why do you deserve a commendation? Should you receive some kind of reward? He says, do not even the tax collectors do the same? I don't think we can possibly imagine the anger and the outrage that the Pharisees and scribes felt when he said that sentence. Because if there was any one group they hated, it was the tax collectors. Why? Because they were renegade traitor Jews who had committed treason against Israel by lining up with the Roman government to extort taxes from the people to, pay, to pad their own pockets. They had become pawns of the Romans. You see, the Roman Empire used a tax farming system. The government would specify a, a, an amount to be collected from a certain area, and a Roman citizen would buy the rights to collect the taxes out of that territory. And that man would then in turn appoint men under him who would appoint others under them. And each appointee had to obtain his quota. And whatever else he got on top, he could keep. And so the potential for bribery and corruption all the way up the tax farming ladder was enormous. And every possible means of garnering, gathering taxes was persistently exploited. So they collected whatever amount they were required and all the rest they skimmed off for themselves. So naturally, tax collectors were loathed. They were doubly loathed among the Jews because they came into contact with their Gentile Roman overlords and thus were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. But even those low, traitorous, disgusting people enjoyed friends, other tax collectors for a start. But Jesus says, if you only love your friends... How are you in any way superior to the despised tax collectors? If you only love the people of your own prejudices and your own narrow thinking and who are a part of your particular group, you're no better than the traitorous tax collectors because they love their group too. In other words, you don't prove that you belong to my kingdom. They thought we have love. In fact, we love people in our group. He says, yeah, that's great. So do the worst people in the human race. But if you think that was a blow to their ego, the next was even worse. He says in verse 47, If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? 
The word translated greet refers to the standard greeting in the Middle East of hugging someone and kissing them on the cheeks when you welcome them. Jesus is saying, if you only have a warm greeting for your fellow scribes and Pharisees, those who look like you, believe like you, act like you, you're no better than a Gentile. Now, folks, there was only one person worse in their minds than a tax collector, and that was a Gentile. In their minds, a Gentile was outside the scope of God's concern and mercy. It only, only fit for destruction as his enemies. So Jesus didn't pull any punches. When he told them they're no better than tax collectors and Gentiles, he's, getting, he's really hitting them where it hurts. He picks the two group of people that they despise more than anyone else. People are at the very bottom of their hierarchy of hatred. And he says, you're no better than them. Look at the statement there in the middle of verse 47, where he says, what are you doing more than others? In other words, what makes you different? If you don't exceed the human standard, you're no different. Why should you be rewarded for being like everybody else? Why should God reserve his kingdom for you? Why does God reserve crowns for you? Why should God pour out blessings on you? You're no better than anyone else. That's a devastating statement. He's saying that religious people are no better than heathen people. He's saying that people who function in the temple are no better than people who extort. You see, you're all sinners. It's just a matter of what kind of sin. You're no better than the rest. You know, that's, that's a question for us to face as well, for those of us who are Christians. What makes us different from the world? Are we different on the job because our ethics are different, our conversation is different, our attitude is different, our love is different? Are we different in our homes in terms of love for those who live with us? Are we different in our communities because we're more helpful and caring? Because if we're not different, we have nothing to say to the society that they're going to believe. But if you're like everyone else, you know, what's the difference? What do you have that they don't have? Well, let's conclude quickly with the last one. Verse 48, Jesus says, imitate your heavenly father. Imitate your heavenly father. He says, there, verse 48, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In Latin, this is what's known as this summum bonum. It's the ultimate highest goal towards which we strive. The sum of all that Jesus has said in these four previous statements. It's, in fact, it's the sum of everything he says in the Sermon on the Mount, and the sum of everything he teaches in Scripture. The great purpose of salvation, the goal of the gospel, the great yearning of the heart of God is for all people to become like him. You say the standard's too high. You're right. And that's exactly what he wanted the Pharisees to know. You can't make it. I think it's beautifully illustrated in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 23, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, you know, that was a hard statement for them to hear. You know why? Because they believe that rich people got into the kingdom easier than everyone else. Why? Because basically their system taught that you got to the kingdom by works. The richer you are, the greater were your works. Why? Because you can buy more lambs to sacrifice. You can give more money to the temple treasury. In other words, you're more religious. You can buy your way into the kingdom. The richer you are, the greater ease you have in getting into heaven. But he reverses the whole thing and says it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. How difficult. Verse 24, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've heard people say all kinds of things. They say, oh, no, Jesus didn't mean a real needle. 
He's talking about the eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem. After the main gate was closed at night, there was this little low gate through which an, a camel could only get by through by removing the baggage on top of it and having the camel stoop down. And it was very difficult for them to do that. The only problem with that view is that there's absolutely no historical or archaeological evidence that there was ever such a gate like that that existed. And that explanation didn't even arise until 1,500 years after Christ. Another view says that the word camel should really be the word rope because the Greek word for camel is kamelos. kamelos. You can see where we get our English word. And the Greek word for rope is only one letter different, kamilos. And there were a couple of late Greek manuscripts, one from the 10th century, one from the 13th century, which have the word rope in them. But every other manuscript of the almost 6,000 manuscripts that we have has the word camel. Uh, so, uh, yeah, there was a Cyril of Alexandria, a church father in the third, or the late fourth early 5th centuries interpreted the word as rope rather than camel. But there's very, the strong evidence is on the side of camel. And really those two views, the gate view and the rope view, are just looking for an interpretation that what Jesus says there makes it just a wee bit easier to accept. But what's Jesus saying? His point is that just as a camel can't go through the eye of a needle, neither can a rich man buy his way into heaven. It's just as impossible. And we know that's what he meant because the very next verse, it says, when the disciples heard this, they're very astonished and said, then who can be saved? They wouldn't have been astonished if, if they had known about an eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem. They're saying, if a rich man can't be saved, then who can? Verse 26, looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. He's saying, as far as man is concerned, no one can be saved. Not a rich man, not a poor man, not anyone else. The man with the most potential, the most money, the most works, the most whatever can't do it. No one can be saved on his own, but with God, anything is possible. And what Jesus is saying in chapter 5, verse 48 in the Sermon on the Mount is the same thing. Be perfect, to which they're supposed to say, at least to themselves, but I can't. I can't be. And when he says, and that's when he says, right, and since you fall short of perfection, you need a savior. And that's where God comes in by the work of the Holy Spirit, brings you to repentance and faith in Christ and makes you what 2 Peter 1, 4 calls partakers of the divine nature. God does for you what you can never do for yourself, and that's be like God. Well, that brings us, we're over time. I'd love to share my closing illustration with you, but it'll have to wait for a a sermon someday. So we'll do that. All right, let's close with prayer and be dismissed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its instruction. Lord, these are hard truths, loving our enemies. But we know that through you, it is possible. So we just ask that we would pray for our persecutors, that we would manifest our sonship, we would look like our Heavenly Father. Bless us now as we go into worship together in the next service. May we bring honor and glory and praise to you.
in all that we say and do there. In Christ's name, amen.